0: Our Holy Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and for your grace and for your goodness that you have lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is who we are. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we praise you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we continue in our worship, as we open up your word, that you'd speak to us. Lord, Nahum has been a difficult book as we, as we talk about judgment and comfort and it seems like they're contradicting and yet judgment is both devastating and comforting. And Lord, you know all these people in this room, you know what they're going through. You know what they're facing. You know their thoughts. You know their feelings. You know their attitudes. You know where they came from. You know even where they're going. And Lord, I pray this this morning, can you speak to them? Can you make yourself known to them? Can you help them to recognize their desperate need for you? Can you help them to look to you for salvation and not to self? Can you help them to cling to the cross? Can you help them to marvel at your incredible mercy and grace? Can you help all of us to have a holy fear as we tremble in your presence as we take your word serious and lord i pray that you would speak to us open up our eyes our hearts and our ears and help us understand and we love you and we praise you and we ask all of this in jesus name and all god's people said amen Well, it's good seeing all of you. Um, If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Nahum. But um, before we get into the Word, just a couple of announcements that I do have. Uh, Mark your calendar for August 22nd. Um, is our next member gathering, and that's going to be at 6 o'clock, and that's kind of part of your responsibility as a covenant member to participate in these member gatherings. It's a time for us uh, to celebrate uh, what the Lord has done among us, to reflect what the Lord has done among us, and even talk about the future, what we desire the Lord to do, especially when it comes to the area of discipleship, and since we're in August, it's around the corner, and then also mark your calendars for August 25th is one of our first core classes that we're going to take. Teach called the Christian story. And so if you're new to the faith or you're old in the faith, I will highly recommend this class. It will really help you um, really understand uh, the the Bible as a whole and realizing it is one big story and it's God's story. And and so my goal in this class is, is basically to show you here's the picture on the puzzle box. As you're trying to kind of put all these pieces together, wondering where does it fit, I want to show you the picture because if you want to put the Bible together, you have to know the picture on the box. And so um, that's going to be that class is going to be 13 weeks sign-ups uh, signups um, you can do online or through the app and that's going to be on Wednesday evening starting the 25th and child care will be uh, provided so um, sign up for that um, but if you have your Bibles we are uh, wrapping up our series through Nahum um, I'm not going to say I hope you enjoyed it because obviously it's not the funnest book. Well, let's just keep it real here. Uh, you know it, it's kind of a, one of those, those odd books. And so as you go through Nahum, and my, my purpose for us in this this series is that it would be both comforting and devastating. It almost seems like ironic. How can you find comfort in the midst of devastation? And yet uh, Nahum, the very word Nahum means comfort and yet all that Nahum is talking about is the devastating judgment of God. And so my hope for us in this series and hopefully I've accomplished a little bit of it that as we read about the goodness and the patience and the holiness and the justice of the living God that we would find comfort knowing that evil will not prevail but that God is going to take every wrong in the world and make it right like especially as we find ourselves living in a time of craziness living in a time where it seems like evil is just prevalent and it's just spreading instead of us freaking out we can sit back and we can find comfort knowing that every single evil action is going to pay the full price and God is going to make it right and so for the Christian that should comfort us but then on the other hand, as we read about the, the reality and the severity of, of God's judgment, that in a sense it would devastate us because like judgment is real. No matter how you want to spin it, no matter how you want to put it, like the reality of the Lord's judgment is devastating, it's imminent, it's swift, it's overwhelming. No one can withstand it. And so as it as we find comfort and devastation, all we can do is really look to the mercy of God, throw ourselves at his mercy, and ultimately knowing that he's displayed his mercy. Mercy through Jesus Christ as we look to Jesus. Now, as we get into the last chapter of Nahum, Nahum chapter 3, we've already seen how the Assyrian Empire, for many years, have conquered other nations. And as they've conquered them, they've taken the people and scattered them throughout the kingdom. And so Nahum reveals to us that now Assyria themselves will be conquered and be scattered by the very own people that they have conquered and scattered. And so we learned like, like last week that it almost seems like the Lord's justice and his judgment towards his enemies run parallel to the restoration of his people. Or another way of looking at it is as the Lord destroys his enemies, he also restores his people. And so here we see the double-edged sword of judgment that is a good thing and a bad thing because it's a bad thing as he's destroying his enemies, but it's also a good thing because in the destruction of his enemies, he also restores his people. And the last truth we learned last week is that there is no enemy the Lord cannot defeat. Which again, it's wonderful news and devastating news. It's wonderful news for us who are in Christ because we know that Christ has already defeated our enemy and that he is coming back to completely destroy our enemy. But then it's also devastating news for those who oppose Christ because those who are opposed to Christ are the very enemies of Christ. And what will the Lord do? Completely destroy And a question I really want you, and hopefully this is one of the questions you ask yourself throughout the series, and even maybe a question you write down and memorize for the rest of your life, like, who can save you from God? And the answer is, only God can save you from God, and He has in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to chapter 3, really the main theme of the third chapter in Nahum is Nahum reveals Nineveh's endless cruelty. Like the time has come for Nineveh to face its divine reckoning uh, for its wickedness before the God of the universe. All the policies that Nineveh had towards the nations, towards the people of God are now coming back to haunt them. And so in our text, Nahum is going to expose the, the cruelty of Nineveh, the vulnerability of Nineveh, the corruption of Nineveh. And then even we're going to see the response of the nations with a day of reckoning towards Nineveh. So in a sense, basically, a third chapter, like you can almost like write this down. The third chapter is the destruction is deserved. Like we're going to see the destruction is deserved. And my hope for us is as we identify for, towards Nineveh, that it may just stir in our hearts a heart of repentance, knowing that our destruction is deserved, that we stand guilty before the Lord. And yet He is merciful and He's gracious, and as it would stir in us as us repenting, turning from our sins and turning towards Him. So let, let's look at how Nineveh's uh, cruelty is exposed in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. So, so let's just stop here. So, so Nahum uses four elements to describe Nineveh's cruelty. So the very first element he uses to describe Nineveh's cruelty is he calls Nineveh the city of blood. The, this, the city of blood is a, a term. It's a metaphor to describe basically a culture of death. So in other words, you have a culture of death that reigned in Nineveh and throughout the empire. And what did the Assyrians do? Every time the Assyrians came and conquered the nation, the only thing they brought was a culture of death to all the nations throughout the ancient Near East. Blood was spilled. And now what we're going to see is, in this irony, as they continually spilled blood, their very own city will be filled with blood. As they, as they brought death to all the surrounding nations, now a culture of death is coming towards them. The second element is not only were they a city full of blood, but also look at the second one. They were totally deceitful. Like the Assyrian Empire would go and conquer these nations and they would promise prosperity and security to these nations if they surrender and the only thing they would bring to these nations is oppression and misery. And we read about it, an example of, uh, of Assyrians' uh, deceitfulness in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 30 to 33. Uh, so you had the messengers of, king, um, of the king of Assyria who would come to Jerusalem and tell the people to surrender. And look at all the lies that they're telling these people. The messenger says this, Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord by saying, Certainly the Lord will rescue us. The city will be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and each may drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. But don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, the Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever rescued this land from the power of the king of Assyria? Like, notice how this statement is just, full of lies and deception, convincing these inhabitants, surrender and you will prosper. We will provide security. We will give you, uh, you can eat from your own vines and your own branches and your own figs until we decide to take you away from your land. So just surrender to us. And yet this propaganda machine that the Assyrians so perfected deceived many of these nations. And this is what the Assyrians were known for, a city of blood, full of deceit. Uh, Look at the third and fourth element of of, of Nineveh being described. Not only are they a city of blood, totally deceitful, but they're full of plunder, never without prey. In other words, because they successfully ransacked and ravaged so many other nations, they devoured everything in their path, taking advantage of every single opportunity to enrich themselves at the expense of others. This was the Assyrian Empire. And Nahum says, Look at your endless cruelty. And, and in verse 2, he's going to use this powerful, poetic, and pointed imagery in which he calls forth the sights and the sounds and the scariness of this oncoming onslaught. Look, look at verse 2. He says this. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses, jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounts of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. In other words, because the Assyrians were so full of bloodshed throughout the ancient Near East, there'll be much bloodshed in their City at the day of reckoning. And and notice all this imagery. Remember last week in in chapter two, we talked about how the Lord's judgment is like fast. Like it might seem like it's a long way from coming, but that when it comes, it's fast and overwhelming. Like notice in verse 2 and verse 3 how it's just using these flash words. And basically the theme it's saying is, look how fast it's coming. Like it is over before you can even open up your eyes. Like you're thinking it's not coming. And then all of a sudden it comes and it's just over overwhelming and this is what's going to happen to the city of Nineveh. Because it's so overwhelming and so fast and before you open up your eyes it's already occurred the dead would just lay all over the city as people stumble over the dead because they had no time to run and hide. And so here's the very first truth I think that we can learn from our text if you're taking notes is this, is that when God's judgment is carried out no one can withstand it. Like when his judgment is carried out, no one can withstand it. Well, maybe another way of looking at it, there's no defenses against the judgment of God. Like there is absolutely nothing that you can do. There's no escaping from it. There's no appeasing God's wrath so that he will not judge you. There's God will punish sinners. And the only way to avoid the judgment of God, or or maybe a better way of saying it, the only way to endure the judgment of God is through the personal work of Jesus Christ. As we repent of our sins and look to him in faith, knowing that Jesus took our judgment on our behalf. And what Nahum is saying in verses 2 to verses 3 is like there is no way that Assyria is going to escape the divine judgment of God. And I think what we can learn is as Assyria and how powerful they were could not escape the judgment of God. Why do you think it will be different for you? Like there's no escaping it. It is coming. It is imminent. You cannot withstand it. And when it does come, it is overwhelming. Now, I'm not naive. I I know this is not a popular message. I know that Nahum is not a book that's read in every church. And I know that even the Old Testament is kind of like, we're talking about the, like, that's just the old, let's just get over it. Let's just talk about Jesus' words. And yet, if you really study Jesus' word, Jesus gives the same warning. He he says in Luke 13, verse 3, he says, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. In other words, what Jesus is saying, judgment is coming. No one can withstand it. And the only way to endure it is if you turn from your sins and you turn towards me. And so this is what we need to learn is that judgment is coming and no one can withstand it. Unless we repent and turn to Christ. Verse 4, Nahum compares Nineveh to a harlot and a sorcerer. Look at verse 4. He says this. Because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all all who see you will recoil from you, saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? And so Nahum characterizes Assyria as an attractive prostitute and sorcerer. In other words, what he is saying is on the outside, she looks beautiful. On the outside, she seems like she has all these benefits. Beautiful beautiful on the outside. Deceitful, luring you in, promising you all of these things. And yet the only thing that bring that comes with her is death and destruction. And what the Lord is saying is, don't I be deceived by the beauty of Assyria? There's nothing pretty about her. I will expose her for the shame that she is, and all the nations will see, and will be devastated by the reality of Assyria and the devastation that occurred because the Lord is against her. And then verse 7, he, 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 he ends with two rhetorical questions. He's saying, who will sympathize to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort her? And the answer is, no one. There will be no sympathy, no compassion, no comfort. There will be no one to rescue her in the day of judgment. Now again, I can't say this enough. This devastating news that we read here in chapter 3, this judgment of God is both devastating, but also good news. Like this news is devastating to Nineveh, But it's fantastic news. It's great news to the people of God. And the reason why the destruction of Nineveh is great news for the people of God because it signifies the end of their brutal reign and oppression over the people of God that have lasted for almost more than two centuries. Assyria will be exposed for its shame and its own brutality. They will experience the own bitter fruit of their own policies. They will no longer be able to instill fear and pain and inflict others. God's people will be rescued as he execute judgment on the enemy of God. And so again, you see judgment as devastating for the one being judged, and yet good news for the one being delivered at the one that is being judged. And so not only do we see that God's divine judgment will be carried out and no one can withstand it, we also learn, if you're taking notes, is that the Lord is the judge of the nations. The Lord is the judge of the nations. Every ruler, every king, every authority, they will not get away with any wrongdoing. God knows every evil deed. He knows every evil thought, every evil action. And he will deal with every evildoer according to his own righteousness and justice. And and again, think about how comforting that is for us. As we find ourselves surrounded by corrupt and evil politicians with their own agenda. And we feel like we can't do anything. And the reality of it is we can't do anything. We know that their evil actions, they might get away with it for a while, but there will be a day of reckoning. And that every little evil in the world will be made right. And God will repay them rightfully of what they deserved. So, what does that mean for us? That means in the midst of evil, where we feel like evil is prevailing, where we feel like corruption is everywhere, there's no justice whatsoever. We can find comfort knowing the Lord is going to judge the nations. And this was the same for the people of God who were oppressed by this evil Assyrian empire. And now the Lord is rightfully going to judge them and by judging them also delivering the people of God. And so as uh, Nahum exposes the endless cruelty of Nineveh, now he's going to reveal to us kind of the the vulnerability uh, of Nineveh by comparing Nineveh to the great city of Thebes. Uh, Look at verse 8. He says to to the city of Nineveh, Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampant was the sea, the river, her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. And so here's the point that Nahum is making. He's raising up in verse 8 this rhetorical question, and he says to Assyria, do you think you're better than Thebes, the most powerful city at that time? And so here's Thebes, okay? The, the city of Thebes was the capital of the upper Egypt, Egyptian kingdom. It was a mighty strong city that was surrounded by rivers and canals. In other words, it was very difficult for that city to be sieged because of its geographical location. How do you siege the city? You had to go through rivers and canals. And everybody knows in warfare, you don't want to go through water to attack a city, especially if it had high walls. You are sitting ducks. But on top of it, not only did it have a wonderful geographic location, but it was surrounded by strong allies. You had put a, a, in Libya, Kush, and Egypt, there were cities surrounding Thebes that were very strong, which made Thebes almost invincible. And you know what's the irony about the question? Because Thebes fell in 663 BC, and you know which empire conquered Thebes? The very Assyrians. And you want to know how brutal um, the Assyrians were? Read verse 10. I'm not going to read it again, but read verse 10. Look at what they did even to the young children and to the babies. Here's the irony. If the invincible Thebes was overthrown by the very Assyrians that now think they're invincible... How much more now will they themselves be overthrown? In other words, Nahum it says, Don't be fooled. Everybody thought Thieves was, was invincible, and you destroyed it. Don't think you are invincible. You will be destroyed. And, and so here's the third truth we can learn there are no invincible nations before the Lord. There is no invincible nation before the Lord. The Lord will always raise up a great nation and then a conquering nation to conquer that great nation. Think about it. The longest empire that has ever lasted is the Roman Empire for 1,500 years. And now you can pay top dollars to look at their ruins. Every nation that has dominated the world has never endured. And how does the Lord work? He raises up nations, and he causes nations to fall according to his own purpose for his own glory. And for us, I I think this is a truth that we can learn. We might be part of a great nation, and at times we might feel like we are invincible, and you yourself might feel like you are invincible. Do not be fooled. You are fragile. There is no one that is invincible before the Lord. Look at Psalm. Psalm 33 verse 10 says this. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is, who rules over everything? Who looks at all the people? The Lord does. He is sitting on the throne. And don't hide behind the fact that you might be wealthy or that the fact that you might be surrounded by a great army or in the strength of a horse. All these things that you're putting your hope in, all these things that you think that are providing comfort and security and strength for you will fail you. Like I think this is a truth we all have to understand. And I think kind of COVID maybe helped us because it made us realize that we're kind of really fragile and that we're kind of really not in control of anything. And and I think Nahum is, is teaching us, you're not invincible. You cannot withstand the judgment of God. And I know how we all think. Every time, and maybe you don't. No, you do, because we all think like that. Every time there's a statistic, what's your initial thought? Not me. I'm the exception to the rule. I'm the special one. I can overcome it. Judgment's coming. I'll be able to escape it. The Assyrians, man, I'm better. No. There's no one that is invincible. You Cannot save yourself from God. You need a rescuer. You need a savior. That is God, and His name is Jesus. Verse eleven, Nahum compares uh, the Nineveh to a drunkard. He says in verse eleven, he says, "You also will become drunk. You will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy." It's kind of a weird metaphor. And so Nahum declares to these leaders of Nineveh that they will be the subject of intoxication of divine judgment. And, and In other words, their faculties will be impaired. When judgment is coming, they will not be able to think straight. They'll be almost like a drunkard trying to walk a straight line. Impossible. They'll almost be like a drunkard trying to say the ABCs. They cannot. There's no escaping the judgment of God. And, and I think this metaphor is even applicable to us. The, the Bible even describes sometimes sinners using this metaphor as, as drunkards. And it's not because sinners drink too much, although that could be possibly be the case, but rather this idea that sinners suffer from severe, impaired reasoning. They rely on their own unredeemed thoughts, and they become like drunkards when it comes to the choices that they're making. It's almost like, what in the world were you thinking? I I don't know. I, I wasn't. And yet, in the day of the Lord, they cannot run. They cannot hide. They're like sitting ducks. Their faculties is impaired. And the only way to escape the judgment from God is not from hiding and running away but rather from running towards him and finding refuge in him in the day of judgment. Verse 12 says this, uh, as, as Nahum is saying that Nineveh is ripe for judgment. He says in verse 12, all your fortresses Of fig trees with figs that ripen first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. No offense. Your land city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. So, in other words, he's using two metaphors, basically comparing the city. Their fortress is like a fig tree that is ripe with fruit. And what do fruit do when they're ripe? They fall down. And those who are pl- 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 plucking these fruit, they're ready to devour. And so he's saying, your, your fortress, your, your mighty city with all its walls, it's like a ripe tree and all the fruit can do is fall down and the devourer is just sitting there with its mouth open. Your soldiers are like peace-loving women. Now, I know in our culture it's not acceptable, but here's the point. Your soldiers either cannot fight or refuse to fight. They don't want to fight. They want peace. Your gates are opened. And basically, it's like fuel to the fire. In other words, the point that he is making and the irony in really offending the Ninevites who considered themselves as fit, war-worthy, prepared for battle, you have no Chance. And again, I can't emphasize this enough that the judgment of God is not only bad news, devastating news, but it's also good news for the people of God. And this is how we have to understand the gospel. The gospel is good news that stands against the bad news. The bad news is divine judgment is coming. No one can withstand it. No one is invincible. There's no way we're out. And you are guilty. And yet the good news is that there is a Savior, there is a rescuer who has satisfied the wrath of God, who has faced the judgment on your behalf, on the basis of the cross of Christ. And so judgment can be good news for you if you look to Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you repent from your sins and you turn to Him. And then Nahum completes his prophetic message against Nineveh. And then in verse 19, he reveals the joy of the nations. Look at verse 13, verse 14. He says this, draw water from the siege, strengthen your fortresses, Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourself like the young locust. Multiply the swarming locusts. You have made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locusts strip the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming locusts, and your scribes like cloud of locusts which settle on the walls on a cold day. And when the sun rises, they take off, and no one knows where they are. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. Verse 19, there is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe, and all who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? Here's the point of the rest of it. Judgment is imminent. The invaders will invade, and there's no way to resist. Regardless of how much preparation you do, your destruction is inevitable. And the final words is to the king, saying, you might be oblivious to what's going on in your kingdom, but you will find out at the day of reckoning, and it will be undeniable. And look at verse 19. How did the nations respond who heard about this news? It says, all will clap their hands because of you. In other words, they will celebrate. They will be joyful. Because the last rhetorical question is, because who has not experienced your constant cruelty? Now I, I want to end off with, with this quote and then we'll talk about application. But it's hard for us, especially in the 21st century, to read about the judgment of God. Like Nahum is not like a book we want our friends to read out loud. Because most of the time when we think about the judgment of God, we think like, that's just cruel, that's just cold hearted, that's just severe, like why would the Lord do this? But I think the reason why we say this is because we don't really understand how horrendous the Assyrians were. And we kind of see a little bit of a glimpse of it that the fact that the nations are celebrating. And and here's this quote uh, from a commentator, T. Shenton, and hopefully it puts in perspective of why they deserve this judgment and why this judgment was so severe. He says this, At the time of Nahum's prophecy, Every nation on earth had experienced, in one degree or another, the barbarity of Assyria's rulers, the exploitation, the oppression, the violence. Both the scriptures and the monuments testify to Assyria's wickedness, their audacious boast of cruelty, and their pitiless crushing of nations. Rows of impaled prisoners captives through whose lips rings were fastened, whose eyes were gouged out and who were flayed alive. This was the evil nation. And what did the Lord do? According to his own righteousness and his own justice, repaid them for everything they have done. No, ma- no wonder the nations were rejoicing. No wonder the nations were celebrating because each and every one of these nations have experienced the oppression were a victim of this brutal empire. Now for us, it's hard to relate to because not many of us have been victims of injustice or have been oppressed by others. We might have experienced hints of it, but we've never really been sold into slavery and lost everything. And so this is why we have a hard time when it comes to understanding justice. This is why it's a hard time for us to see judgment as a good thing because the only thing we can look at is judgment is a bad thing and we don't want to believe in it because why would God allow that? And here, So here, here, here's my, my point. Even if you didn't enjoy this series, which I will completely understand, I just want you to remember this. I want you to see this picture as judgment being both devastating and comforting, both horrendous news and good news. And And so here's our application. And this is the application for the entire series. God is going to judge, will judge all the nations according to his righteousness. And his word will have a final say in the affairs of humanity. This is the reality. God will judge every nation, every person, every tribe, every tongue, according to his righteous standards. And his words will have the final say in the affairs of humanity humanity. And again, it's it's easy for us to be be repulsed by the judgment of God. It's easy for us to see judgment as just cold-hearted and cruel until we read about what the Assyrians did, until we see the joy that judgment brings to the nations who are being delivered. Judgment is bad news and judgment is good news. It's bad news for the one being judged But it's good news for the one who's being delivered from the one who is judged judgment is devastating and comforting it's devastating for the one being judged and yet it's comforting for the one longing to see that wrong being made right and the only way for judgment to be comforting and good news is when we take refuge in christ Think about this. I talked about a little bit about revelation last week. The reason we avoid revelation is it's a scary book. We read about the judgment of God. And yet when that book was written, it was written while the church was being oppressed. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ with the promise of the king is coming." And when the Christian would read that book, you know what's their response? Come, Lord Jesus, come. And you know what's the 21st century response, unfortunately? I hope it doesn't happen in my time. That's the wrong response. You do not understand judgment then. Our response should be, even after Nahum, even after Revelation, is come, Lord Jesus, come. For yes, judgment is devastating, but it's also good and comforting with it every wrong in the world will be made right. And we don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. Why? Because we have a rescuer, God himself who took on flesh, who satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, who took our judgment. And so as we transition uh, to the Lord's Supper, I want to give you this imagery the Lord's Supper again it's symbolic it's an object lesson and it's an object lesson that reminds us of our deliverance from God's wrath now I really find it interesting that in Scripture the cup normally represents the wrath of God so for example in Isaiah 51 verse 22 uh, Isaiah talks about the cup of the Lord's fury. And in Mark 10, uh, verse 39, uh, the disciples uh, came up to Jesus and wanted to sit on his left and his right. And Jesus tells them, can you drink from the cup that I'm about to drink? In other words, Jesus knew the cup that was waiting for him. The wrath of God that he was about to drink. This is what the cup represented. But then something happened. The cup that would normally represent the wrath of God that each and every one of us is supposed to drink at the day of judgment, God somehow offers us a cup of new wine, no longer filled with wrath, but now filled with mercy and so we're invited to come and drink from this new cup this new wine filled with mercy filled with the blood of Jesus Christ that this cup of remembrance this cup of Thanksgiving that the Lord does not give us what we deserve a cup of wrath, but rather he offers us a new cup of mercy, the blood of Jesus Christ that has satisfied the wrath of God. And so this cup is the new wine of the gospel. And so as we get ready to to participate in these, these elements, as we distribute these elements, I want you to picture The cup that used to represent the wrath of God now is the cup of mercy filled with the blood of Jesus that satisfied the wrath of God that was geared towards you. It's no longer a cup that you have to drink filled with wrath, but it's a cup that you get to drink filled with with mercy and the blood of Jesus that have washed you as white as snow, that has cleansed you forever, that has satisfied the wrath of God. And all of this is because of what Jesus did on the cross. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. Our sin exchanged for His righteousness. Our life exchanged for for his life and so when god looks at us he doesn't see us as guilty but he sees us as righteous standing before the lord and it's only because of the blood of jesus so let me pray for us let's hand out these elements let us let us meditate and reflect on this new cup of wine the mercy of the lord filled with the blood of jesus our holy father we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have replaced this cup of wrath with a cup of mercy filled with the blood of Jesus that have satisfied your wrath and that has covered us. And Lord, I I pray that as we get to sit at this table, as we get to eat the body of Christ, drink the blood of Christ, that we would be reminded of this great exchange that took place that we were guilty and that we stood condemned in judgment waiting for the wrath of God to come and yet you did not give us what we deserved. You sent your son to die on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that as we hand out these elements, as we eat it and as we drink it, help us to remember Help us to see the goodness of your judgment. Help us even to see the mercy and grace of your judgment. The righteousness and the justice of your judgment. And Lord, may it stir in us a heart of repentance. May it stir in us a heart of gratitude. That we say praise the Lord that he did not give us what we deserve." that he took the cup of wrath and he drank it himself and gave us a cup filled with new wine thank you lord jesus we ask this in jesus name amen i want to give you this picture of of the gospel again every analogy has flaws so don't look at the flaws just look at the big picture again this doesn't mean anything it's just simply symbolic But on the day of judgment, you stand before the righteous judge and the prosecuting attorney brings his charges against you and you're guilty on all charges and you have no defense and you're waiting for the judge to give his sentence and you know the sentence is death. And as he is about to announce his sentence on you because you were guilty on all charges, this rescuer barges into the court. And he says, you honor, this man is innocent. Why? It's not because he did anything. It's because I paid for him. I will exchange his life for mine. His sin for my righteousness, and this is what Jesus did on the cross. So when we eat this body and when we drink the blood, we're reminded of His perfect life exchanged for our sinful life. So take this bread, eat it, as you think about His perfect life for your sinful life exchange. Eat it and remember Serve Him. And then you think about this cup his righteousness for your sinfulness drink it in remembrance of him Our heavenly father we thank you for the rescuer that you have sent to come us and to come and to save us Lord, thank you that we can be declared righteous not because of anything that we have done but because of everything your Son has done on the cross for us. Where he lived a life we could not live and he died a death we were supposed to die. His life was exchanged for ours. His righteousness exchanged for our sinfulness. And you have accepted us. And you look at us as righteous because of your Son. And all of this is made available to us by faith. As we look to the Savior, trust in the Savior, believing that His blood is sufficient for us. As we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Him. As He has saved us from wrath, and the destruction and the penalty of sin, as he saved us to be part of his kingdom, as citizens of the kingdom, to live under his rule, under his reign, under his authority. And right now, we live for the king, and we thank you for that. So help us to live for you, Lord Jesus. Help us to honor you. And Lord, when we sin, help us to repent of our sins, to turn from it, knowing that it's been paid for on the cross we thank you for all of this. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and worship our King.